0: Lance Bangs has become today's go-to director for comedians filming their stand-up specials, road shows, showcases, and documentaries. His credits since 2013 alone include directing Hannibal Buress, Mark Marin, Chelsea Peretti, Jen Kirkman, Kyle Kinane, John Hodgman, and Bridget Everett. He followed Todd Berry on his crowd work tour, hopped on the bus with Crash Test, shepherded the meltdown with Jonah and Camel on Comedy Central, and the greatest event in television history specials for Adult Swim. Now he's behind the lens for Flophouse, the new stand-up showcase for the brand-new Viceland cable channel starring Claire O'Kane. It goes inside the homes, garages, and backyards, shared by multiple comedians in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, New Orleans, and Atlanta. But how did Lance get from making music videos to working with the Jackass crew to comedians? I asked him, so let's get to it! So, Lance, thanks for joining me on Last Things First. Yeah, thanks for having me over. Uh, your latest directorial effort in the comedy realm is Flophouse, yeah. which debuts the uh, start of March on Viceland, the new channel.
1: Yeah, it's uh, March 3rd. It's going to start running, and, and it'll be on every Thursday night around 1030.
0: Now, when I think of Comedians in a House, I go back to 2003, when Last Comic Standing debuted on NBC. Their main selling point was, hey, we put the Comedians in a House, that's uh, that's what sold network television. It's going to be crazy, and yet, of course, it wasn't. No. Do you remember? I do. I guess the
1: that what I picture when I think of like comedians in a house is more of, you know, David Cross and Louis C.K. and Mark Maron sharing a pad, or Judd Apatow and Adam Sandler having a cheap apartment in in California when they're first out there writing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that first season of Lost Comic Standing, the you know the sort of manufactured version of. Trying to put funny, entertaining people together and force chemistry in a contrived environment, which is definitely not the uh, the tone or approach that I went with.
0: Right, it was the real, real world, real world, real world meets comedy. Um, but back then, you were in the early two thousands. You were hanging around with the Jackass crew, correct? Yeah.
1: At that point, we'd um, we'd done the TV series, which I just shot a little bit of, and then uh, the first feature film was done at that point as well.
0: Did you imagine? You're kind of a man after my own heart because you started out, you started making music videos and other films, but then you kind of veered into this territory where you were making things about the making of a thing. Did you? How did how did that evolution happen for you? Uh, it was sort of a strange evolution.
1: I I began making personal films, and then people saw some of that. Primarily, musicians that were coming through Athens, Georgia, and started having me work with them. And the different outlets of what you could make at that time period of the early '90s was music videos or live performances or concert films or kind of visuals to project behind a band. So for REM or My Bloody Valentine, there would be things that you would put up on screens behind them while they played. Um, and then it, there was a sense of people just wanting to have me kind of tag along or join them or bounce ideas off of or just be a companion on their tours or adventures. And so I started jumping in the band with, with other bands or getting invited to recording sessions or things like that. And then as an extension of that, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles in the mid-90s. And I was coming out of Athens, Georgia, which was a much more, you know, sort of like underground progressive art scene. And didn't know what to do with my time at night in L.A., where like the the venues that live bands are playing out were more like showcase clubs for people trying to get signed to major labels, which was the sort of the circuit that I was interested in. And then realized that there were these underground comedians that were doing space, you know, doing work at like Luna Lounge or on Cabaret. Sorry, not Luna Lounge. Uh, Doing a – Luna Lounge was in New York, right? Um,
0: uh, yeah, uh, the Largo. Part, yeah.
1: So uh, if I could clarify that one. So started going out at night and seeing things happening at on uh, Cabaret and Largo and, and venues like that and kind of befriended David Cross and the crowd of people that are doing Mr. Show and started shooting footage with them and tagging along with the stuff that they're making. Right. And then from there, that kind of grew into doing more comedy work and specials in a way where at the time, the tradition was that you would make an hour-long, overly-lit uh, camera on a crane – Type of comedy special for HBO mm-hmm. or Showtime, and that that wasn't what comedy felt like to these comedians. It wasn't what David Cross imagined when he went out and performed. And so, started doing things where we would like travel and make a tour documentary and turn that into what would count as a standup special rather than right the the typical format.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's become kind of more popular now in, in recent years. And of course, you've become the most popular comedy director in the last few years. Was that something you imagined that? That would become your f- full time. <laughs> no, no thing. not at
1: all. That um, that sort of uh, was an interesting transition of just what I got excited about, and that I felt like a lot of interesting people that had the minds that would excite me, that felt like they were on fire, or generating interesting takes on what's going on in the culture, shifted away from learning how to play bass in a band, and to becoming they wanted to do stand up, or make videos for the web, or write, or make comedy. And there's just been this sort of boom in the past decade or so of all these young, bright, interesting people working in comedy rather than, you know, putting together an indie rock band.
0: Right, because your first major comedy special that you did was for David Cross, right? Yeah. Yeah. But now you're working a lot more with with up and comers and Yeah, for people. this
1: particular show, like I guess it it festivals I, I put on a show called Come Laugh With Us where I'll show rare and unreleased work, things that I've done over the years that we weren't able to legally put out into the world. So there's footage of Mitch Hedberg and the final kind of run of shows that he did or uh, while we were working on different projects over the years, if there were clips we shot for Jackass that we couldn't get, you know, approval right. or, or clearance or signatures on, we would, you know, maybe screen that briefly. Uh, and then having stand-up comedians get up and perform that were either people I'd worked with recently or people that I was like excited about the weird take that they had on things, and that's been really satisfying and fun. And as an extension of that, when we got the opportunity to build this cable TV network, uh, Vice Land, I wanted to make a show that would cover comedy, but not in a traditional way, and that would sort of have, like, I'm not interested in reality TV, but the sense of actual verite documentary that's not scripted of what people's lives are actually like, what it feels like to be alive in 2016, what it feels like to be living with friends as a way of kind of sharing rent or getting by or supporting each other, and then throwing a party among those people and then having a stand-up show either in the backyard or the garage or on the rooftop. Seem like a great way to kind of run around the country.
0: Yeah, I've noticed in, in, in New York and L.A., I don't know how much it's true in other places, but you would actually know better than I would how much this element of just let's put on a, the comedy show, the alternative nature of alternative venue is really alternative now. Yeah. I know in New York there's uh, living room shows. There's a series called Live at the Apartment where people go on Craigslist and they take over somebody else's apartment into yeah. a show. Um, how how widespread is is this?
1: There really is a, an underground network in the same way that, like, Black Flag figured out a way to tour the U.S. in 81, 82 and would tell their friends in the Mid Men or Husker Doo that, hey, there's a pizza place in St. Louis. You can go play out. that will it. pay you 150 bucks, and then from there, it's a half a day's drive to <laughs> the next city. Uh, there are people like Sam Talent in Denver who have built this circuit and can tell other young comedians, like, hey, you've got a, a couch to crash on here when you come through Denver, right. and I can hook you up with a show in Omaha. And then from there, you can get yourself up to Minneapolis, and here's who you need to talk to there. And so there really is this uh, this way that it's working outside of the tradition of of regular comedy clubs with drink minimums, where you're going and playing in people's houses or alternative spaces.
0: Right. I can't imagine though doing a show in my own house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how How long how long have they been doing it before you happen upon them?
1: I would say you know it's been going on for a little bit. Like like we mentioned at the top of the interview, there is a tradition in the past of of comedians like living together, but as far as like actual performances happening. That's something that kind of rose out of the frustration of not getting access to the kind of clubs that want you to do difference between men and women or, you know, the sort of like topics that get hit every time in a a club show.
0: Well, we're also in such a boom period. There's so many comedians and not enough venues for them all to get stage time. Yeah. So uh, let me me ask you. You mentioned having having footage of uh, Mitch Hedberg's last tour. Was that the tour he was on with Stephen Lynch? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. What uh, what was that experience like for you?
1: It was remarkable. So Michael Blyden, who's a great filmmaker, was working on a project where he was you know, trying to shoot some footage and figure out what they were going to do. And then when he hit the Northwest, uh, they asked me to help with some friends and, and just kind of get footage of the shows that they were doing. And Mitch was someone that I'd seen when he was starting out. He would do great performances at at Largo, for example, and I couldn't figure out his accent at first. I didn't know if he was, like, a New Orleans character or, like, <laughs> it took a while to realize, like, where he was actually coming from. And, and his cadence and delivery was so inventive and imaginative. And I'm I'm fairly oblivious to um people's dependency or drug issues or whatever. And so I didn't pick up on that right away. And maybe other people knew much more clearly. But my initial sense of him wasn't, like, that he was this, you know, heavy...
0: Oh, yeah. No, I I got to know him and perform with him sometimes back when I actually did perform. And uh, the two things that struck me, one, you mentioned the cadence. That was something that he developed over time. And the other thing was I never saw the dark side of of Mitch's life. Other people would tell me secondhand, but I never saw it myself.
1: Yeah, and so in my own, you know, again, like I I may have just kind of not been savvy enough to pick up on it, but my experience of him was this very, like, playful, inventive mind, and then – Going to kind of shoot during that last batch of shows, seeing the the state that he was in at the time and the sort of the clear effects of of being you know slightly out of it or foggy or you know going in moments on stage where he would sort of lose focus or, or feel like he was isolated and then rallying and coming back and fighting through it and connecting with the audience and trying to turn things around. That was a strange tour where he was co-headlining with Stephen Lynch and kind of alternating, I believe, who would go up last each night,
0: and so. It was a, a strange format for him. Yeah, because actually Lynch was probably selling more tickets at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though Mitch was more popular among comedians. Uh, what So what happened with that footage?
1: Well, like I said, I, I think that Michael made a, a bit of a memorial or, or tribute video that you can probably find online. But I held on to the stuff that we shot in, in some of those shows and at some of these, like, you know, smaller events or screenings that I've done, I'll sort of like talk about Mitch and then show a little clip or excerpt of kind of a great moment where things are falling apart on stage at the crystal ballroom in Portland. And he was battling like, you know, a a strange audience and some frustration. And then the equipment wasn't working and like Mm -hmm. the microphone dropped out and then the other microphone wasn't working. And you see him get inventive and excited about playing with what's going wrong. And he starts, kind of daring the spotlight operator to see if he can keep up with him and so he's kind of you know jumping around the stage trying to lose the spotlight and then doing a bit with like each mic trying to see which one can work and fucking with him and it becomes this great very alive moment of performance and and you see him at his best while kind of rallying and fighting back against this awful situation he was stuck in yeah
0: i want to i want to watch this right now
1: can we can we go and watch this and then come back? It's all um, in my archives. It's it's a, you know the kind of stuff that I've just shot over the years of so things that I was interested in putting myself in different situations or or capturing things and documenting them and then holding on to.
0: So being being on tour with Mitch, was that before or after you uh worked on uh, Dave Chappelle's block party? I feel like it it might have been after block party. Uh
1: that was an amazing
0: experience. That was great. Yeah. What what was your role on that? So second, Michelle second Gondry right was
1: was directing the film and uh, asked if I would go to Yellow Springs, Ohio and Zeno Ohio and kind of hang out with Dave and shoot a bunch of footage of him back there. Um, so no one else in the production like Michelle Gondry wasn't able to go. So I just kind of went and took a camera um, uh, operator friend of mine, T.G. Firestone, who now is making these other shows of Vice. And we just kind of ran around Ohio in this moment that we didn't know it was while Chappelle was kind of walking away from –
0: Right. The Comedy Central show and figuring out what he wanted to focus on. And he was right at Zenith yeah, peak he moment. Was right at that
1: moment. And um, it was interesting, like, seeing, you know, the reflection and the thoughtfulness and the wariness he had that he was going through in his mind about what the world wanted out of him. And yet he knew that he wanted to throw this amazing block party and have this thing where you would see, you know, all these great performers and, you know, a young Kanye West. And, yeah. And dead presidents and and – the, the Fujis and and all these great things happening in a neighborhood of of Brooklyn that's I'm sure radically transformed now from when we when we shot the thing
0: yeah, that's that's for sure yeah. yeah brooklyn has changed a lot just in 10 12 years yeah. but following dave Chappelle around yeah, his hometown or so at that
1: at that time was was fascinating and there was a small market that he would walk to to go buy cigarettes and uh you know he had a sense of of what are people thinking of me as the one like you know black man in this small rural community that's that's out in this kind of farm area and then realize that like the initial suspicion he felt from people like Mm -hmm. eventually wore away the more time he spent around them and that they were benevolent and and accepted him and and befriended him over time and that he had very little in common politically or social background with some of these local folks but then really kind of got to uh drop his guard and get to know them and, and was reassessing his own sense of like how he was treated.
0: Yeah. Uh, he, I I was talking to a comedian last night and was reminded that, that Chappelle has, has filmed his sets in two different cities over the last year, but hasn't put any of that out. Are you privy to any of that? Were you I don't involved? know. I've,
1: I've been making an effort to go see him a bunch of times and, you know, it's been great watching the the choices he makes where, there's a, a moment a, maybe a summer or two ago where he just decided to, like, ride a motorcycle around the, the country and would show up and with, like, a day or two's notice, like, just call a, a venue in a town he wanted to go to and say, hey, this is Dave Chappelle. Could you sell some tickets if I wanted to come do a show there tomorrow night or the next night? Yeah. And, uh, and so these great performances would happen. He would just show up and, and walk out on stage and be open to whatever was happening, and he would deliberately pace things where he would sort of, you know, Work it out where he was allowed to smoke on stage, despite the normal smoking bans at the right. houses. But yeah, he still does that, and just kind of like do that for a bit, and then see what happened in the audience. Or if someone like you know yelled out, and there were some shows where that would go horribly wrong, where there would be people that were drunk or not that bright who were just yelling out catchphrases, and you would see his frustration. And other times he would maybe engage the person and get an actual conversation going and make material out of it, and. Yeah. It was great. And then he also popped up at Meltdown, a, a venue in, in Los Angeles that we do the uh the T V series. Oh yeah, you do do the Comedy Central yeah. series with Jonah yeah. and Camille. Yeah. And so it was great seeing him do a set there and the material he was covering.
0: But that's not but that's not for the series. There wasn't, right? No, he
1: just kinda happened to turn up <laughs> one night. But he's great and the sets he's doing have been really interesting and, and you know, I know it's great that he has been shooting his own stuff and hopefully he'll figure out a time and in, in the way that he's comfortable getting it out there.
0: How is following uh todd barry around the country that was a big comparison todd's great
1: todd is uh i'm sure you know like one of the great greatest working comedians and in particular like his ability to do low-key crowd work i want to say dry sardonic yeah for sure that's that's a a good uh, easy description for todd um but uh, you know all of his like personal quirks that make him interesting when he's not on stage are also interesting to be around and fun to tag along with and so that was the thing that Louis C.K. put together uh, where they sent me around to go make this special where we would just do a crowd work tour um, where there's no prepared material, no written structure. He wouldn't do like 15 minutes of material and then go into crowd work. He would just go out and take a look at the, you know, at the crowd. And, and again, similar to what was happening with that Chappelle thing, someone would say something or have a weird expression and he would start like, what's you? What's your deal? Right. What are you doing tonight?
0: When you're directing things like that, does that, does that free you up? Not not trying to stick to a a formula or when you yeah for that you one, don't know what's gonna happen it's it's really truly a documentary
1: yeah it's this great adrenaline rush of being in the moment and having to know that you've got to spin around and recalibrate and and shoot the person that's like lit by a cigarette machine in the back of the room and get clear audio of them <laughs> without being distracting or, or stepping on the chemistry of what's actually happening in the moment between right. them and Todd and so that was uh, a very fun. Thing to go to, and a lot of those shows were at venues you don't, you wouldn't normally shoot a special in, where there's not room to do a giant backdrop and in and three point lighting. And, and
0: I mean, the technology though has, even in the last few years, has has gotten to the point where you don't need as big equipment.
1: No, do. like I've been able to kind of work with and build small, weird cameras and rigs and approaches for getting
0: into int- intimate spaces and
1: keeping eye line with people while I'm filming and not having a giant contraptions in the way
0: right and because especially for flop house you're you're filming in bathrooms and yeah and you know at least the garage there's in the first episode there's cutaways where you can see oh there's a crew yeah <laughs> there's a full crew on this
1: yeah yeah flop house was great and and some of the people that made that show work so well there's people like clara kane who's a great comedian that would have been here today if her plane hadn't been diverted to the wrong city uh but she's just a great personality that kind of emerged while we were shooting within that world the first episode is set at. A house that Solomon Giorgio and Eric DeDorian and James Austin Johnson were living in. And it was definitely a place that, you know, comedians would come crash on a mattress on the floor or sleep on a couch. And so, you know, we had Marcella Aguella kind of crashing there, and Danielle Radford had just been hit by a bus in Seattle, and so she was mm. kind of recovering on a, a mattress on the floor there. And So how many people live there at one time? I would say there's typically like three – Rooms that have beds in them with doors that close, and then mm-hmm. other people just sort of like as they fit on uh, couches or on the floor in the living room. But it's this great environment where they're all supportive and helping each other. If you want to come from Houston and try and hit every open mic in L.A. and take some meetings or get seen by people in that world, you come do that. And then to return the favor, if Solomon wants to go do a set in Houston or Denver or San Francisco, wherever you're from, you help him out when he goes back right, and trading and so there's another great comedian, David Bory, who had left the Bay Area, uh, was up there when we shot at an amazing house called the Sylvan House. And then he also turned up in Denver when we were shooting there. <laughs> and then he just moved into one of the rooms at Salma Giorgio's house and took over one of the beds there. And mm-hmm. it's maybe the first actual like bedroom with a door he's had since he was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Uh, how many, how did you, how did you find that house in particular? Were there a number of houses that you Yeah, were there were a lot scouting? of candidates.
1: Like there were, you know, there's been some great houses in LA over the years. All the guys in power violence had a crazy situation where they were renting, I guess what you could call a mansion. Like somehow they figured out if enough of them split the rent that they could get this giant place, but they were just kind of getting evicted or moving out or whatever the situation was when it was time to go shoot this show. And there's a place like the Comedy Grotto that does stuff in the backyard and then other houses in L.A. that multiple comedians live at. And then uh, Sam Varella, who's a great person that knows the comedy world, recommended that I go over and check out Solomon Giorgio's place in Highland Park. And that was the one that felt right to me or felt like the best mix of the personalities of people that are living there. And then showing up and really seeing someone who was there because they were had been hit by a bus. Like right. felt like, okay, this is this is the space to do it in.
0: I mean, of course, the L.A. house has a different – it's gonna have a different vibe to it because it's in Los Angeles. It's yeah. the you know, one of the two power centers for show business and comedy. What it, how does how did the atmosphere compare when you went out to places outside of the industry?
1: You would get an interesting thing where a lot of people that we were filming across the series had never been on television before, had never had to think about how you do a set for television. And so they might you know start singing a Beatles song or something and you realize like, oh that's gonna be trickier hard to clear that or make that work. Or um, they, uh, you know, right. they, you know. they would do that um, on
0: television, but it's going to cost a <laughs> exactly. lot of money. And we're Vice. And
1: it was great kind of meeting people and, and realizing that like a lot of them don't have representation or not like, you know, connected to the industry in any in right. no way yet. And that they're just these kind of like fascinating young pure voices out there in the world and putting them on and, and finding a way to, to show them and reflect them was exciting and rewarding.
0: Were the audiences different at all? Or? Yeah,
1: like the audiences in some towns are just different audiences like the people in denver are fairly like pacified like they're on a lot of pot generally and mm-hmm. they're just sort of like bundled up we did it outdoors and it was 18 degree temperature um, oh my yeah i was hoping it would actually start snowing because it would have been amazing visually <laughs> yeah but that would you're just seeing everyone's breath the whole time but they just like wore coats and sat there for hours as we shot the entire show outdoors and and you realize that like oh they're like basically you know cozy headed from being stoned out of their minds. <laughs> Um, When in other cities, it was like a more aggressive, like raging, like, you know, party, alcohol-fueled kind of feeling.
0: And, uh, you know, the show being on Viceland with Spike, I mean, your relationship with Spike goes back to being John Malkovich or before that even?
1: Before that, like I would say it was probably Sonic Youth that connected the two of us in the mid-1990s where um, I've been traveling with them and and shot a bunch of footage. And Spike was friends with theirs and had done some of their previous videos. Right. he got asked to put together a music video for a song called The Diamond Sea in 1995. And I've been – maybe I was like traveling with Pavement on Lollapalooza that summer, but somehow um, took a bunch of like Super 8 film that I'd shot of of those bands playing and then other things that had just happened during my travels that, that time period that were on right. the same rolls of film and kind of wove that into a video that he was making for them and then brought me out to Los Angeles to start shooting stuff together and hanging out and making projects.
0: So if I went back 20 years – And talked to you and Spike and said, okay, uh, Lance, uh, hold on to your hat. You're going to be hanging out with young comedians and directing them documentary style for a channel that Spike owns on TV. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) What
0: what What would you have thought back in the mid 90s?
1: I would have believed it. Like, you know, Spike at the time was making great things through magazines and he had an interest in the world that went beyond the films we were making and he had, you know, things he would do for. There's a magazine called DIRT that was an offshoot of Sassy, and then he was involved with Grand Royal for a little bit. So he's always had a curiosity for things beyond just straight theatrical filmmaking, and has worked in different formats and made art and and projects and all different things. And so um, as a, now that he's a creative director at Viceland for this project, it's it's been fun to kind of collaborate and and make all you know invent a whole cable channel basically. Yeah.
0: Well, how, but I guess the question I really want to know is how does this. How does this version of you match up with what your childhood vision of grown-up Lance would be?
1: Oh, I hadn't. I didn't think I was going to be alive. I. Uh, it's. It's been just a continuation of making the things that I was interested in and being drawn to, go spend time with the people that excite or inspire me the most, and not really pre-planning or, or having a trajectory in mind of where I wanted to end up ten or twelve years in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, how would that kill you though? Oh, no you were, just didn't imagine no, there, being being in your forties no kind of like, like yeah,
1: like there the stakes were high and, and things were tough when I was uh younger and, and I didn't know that I was going to be around oh okay um but let's talk about Clara kane, who <laughs> is uh great, and I wish that she had been here today
0: well how did you, how did you decide to 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 put her kind of front and center? She just emerged like she just popped up at that first thing that
1: we did at, at Solomon's house,
0: and that was the first time you'd met her or no i had her, her on
1: I'd put her on a comedy show at the Bridgetown Festival in Portland before that. I'd seen her work when she okay. was still in the Bay Area starting out. I was watching footage of her and and then invited her up to come perform in Portland for the show I was doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that I wanted her to be on the show and perform, but she was on the front porch while we were just kind of in the early afternoon shooting footage and just instantly was funny and charismatic and, and sharp and led us on a guided tour of the garage, which she had spray-painted, and we saw mattresses where she had spray-painted, like, a nude figure of her boyfriend, Josh Androsky. Yeah and was, like, shooting bows and arrows. <laughs> and it was, like, this person is, like, a great person to tag along and, and sort of, like, learn these worlds from. And because she's so um, beloved within that underground comedy scene, every time that we went to, she would have also, like, crashed there or done shows or spent time living in the house or whatever. So she was a natural fit to kind of have along at the Sylvan House in San Francisco where she had previously been and then had reasons to kind of, like, we were trying to develop other shows and, and come up with ideas. Because, like, while I'm making things, I tend to just burn all day long running from one idea to another and we'll go catch up with bands or painters that I used to know or poets or writers mm-hmm. in each city and sort of catch up on other things that are exciting to me. Right. And so having her tag along made sense as a way of uh, developing other show ideas or oh. generate – and plus she's just like a great company to make all the other comedians feel at ease and that the, the sensibility of this thing is going to be right. Because there's, you know, there's a fear. If you're in New Orleans and you hear that like, oh, Vice is coming to town to make a <laughs> – Comedy special about us. So you don't know what that's going to be or what the tone right. is going to be, and you might overplay it and think like, "Oh, I've got to put on, you know, what I think people in Brooklyn are wearing," and right. and drink a bunch of alcohol, which is not my tone or sensibility. But you if make,
0: but if you have Claire as the face, yeah, but of if the Claire show. is like the
1: the person they already know that has helped them out in the past, and she shows up, they kind of like, "Okay, great, I
0: get it." Like mm-hmm. this is this is the feeling. What's the What's the biggest thing that surprised you making the show? Just the uh, the
1: dangerous balance of how out of control the party can get afterwards and the things that feel like they're going to topple over or right. catch on fire or explode. <laughs> and then that keeping them just back from that happening has been really rewarding. Like we've had to kind of bounce or eject some people that were causing trouble at some of the shows and getting away with that, like getting just to the edge of things, feeling really dangerous and exciting and fun, but no one actually getting hurt is, is always a rewarding <laughs> spot to be in. There might be some vomit though. There's plenty of vomit, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> I did. I did watch the first episode. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it does end in vomit.
0: And what's the – um? I ask all my guests this. What's the last great bit of advice you've received along the way?
1: I don't know. One of the things that I learned from Spike early on, it's not the last thing, but just is kind of like stuck lasting, with me. Lasting. Yeah, maybe. lasting is good. Um, it's just the ability to kind of question and say why. When people say, like, oh, here's how we're going to do this and here's how a comedy special works, mm. just be like, wait, but, but, but why? Like, what's the intention or what are we trying to do really and why do you think it has to be in front of a theater and you're going to do two shows the same night and – and shoot these five camera angles and then cover the crowd and cut to the crowd every time to prove that people are laughing. Like, <laughs> like why, why does that have to be the way? And like, what, what is the idea? If you just want to show people having a good time or get across the person's minds and their ideas and what they have to say about the world, maybe you can do that a different way. Maybe it can be Todd Berry in different cities and you don't spend the money in one giant theater. You go right. hit like, you know, the cabaret in Vancouver and figure out how to do a show in Alaska. Cause that'll be interesting. And what are the people like there? And what do they do for entertainment? And, you know, in in sort of deconstructing what the the typical ways of doing things are, and finding a more inventive or fun, or you know, because you're only alive this brief period of time, and and you want to make things that are what you want to spend your time doing, and so combining all of that has been how I've functioned or got by.
0: Is that how Chelsea Peretti's special Chelsea became Peretti, one of the greats? Her her <laughs>
1: special is great because of her. Like she genuinely was the smartest and most thoughtful of of comedians about knowing what she didn't like about other specials and and we would talk about like how to work away from that or deconstruct that or Mm -hmm. something different. But like everything great and smart about that is Chelsea. Like she's just the best at all those ideas about like the dogs. Right. We talk about deconstructing all the the cliches. I was happy to execute them, but like she was a genius about how she wanted to approach that thing. And I have so much respect for her.
0: And what's the, what's the first piece of advice you would give, I guess, two different, I'll ask this two different ways. What's the first, piece of advice you would give to a to an upcoming up and coming comedian man i
1: i just have such my own distinct sense of what i like about
0: comedy like
1: i like to see what's distinct and sorry i like to see what's distinct and idiosyncratic about people it feels like i'm i feel like i'm wasting my time if i watch someone just do their take on what donald trump is about or something that you know 10 other people could get up and do the same material and i'm way more interested in like kate berlant Doing a voice or a character, or mm, yeah. acting something out, or the kind of honesty or truth that comes out of Kyle Kernane's persona and voice, and how he's willing to kind of like you feel like he's this gruff guy, but like the the warmth that really comes through <laughs> from him—he's vulnerable. Yeah, is is great, and the sort of uh, that humanity is what I get drawn to and get most excited about. But there's been so many great comedians we met during this thing. There's Eric Dorian, who at first I didn't I didn't feel comfortable with, like. You know, <laughs> He has so many ideas like, <laughs> that's, we were talking his, about, like that's his vibe. Yeah. That's his we vibe. Had, we had so many like things that like I know like although I talk about deconstructing or make thing, making the T V show that's like not the traditional way, mm-hmm. there are certain things like I know I've got to have this many cameras here at this time and I have to like record sound without someone talking over it at the same time. And he was throwing out so many ideas that would have like tampered or made it harder for me to make anything work that I was like, <laughs> What is this guy's deal? But as soon as he was like actually at the party or on stage, I was like, Oh, this is what the guy's deal is and he's so interesting and, and sharp and funny and and ended up just being, like,
0: amazing. You just had to harness it. Yeah, that.
1: and Solomon Giorgio is so charismatic and and, and such an interesting character, and, and I loved watching him work and, and host these parties and keep an elegant tone to everything <laughs> in the middle of his debauchery. Uh, and then, you know, obviously Clara Kane is so charismatic. Yeah. It's just been a great way to kind of meet, make new friends, travel the country, and explore this previously un undocumented uh world that's out there
0: yeah uh i said i was asked ask you this question two ways so before i let you go what would be the first piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker
1: i think that people are starting to learn the advice that i typically tell to people which is just to start making stuff like i i, I never went to like a proper film school i mm-hmm. never you know learned set etiquette or normal dynamics or any of that sort of things so i just kind of went out and, and made things and um that's the only way that I know to kind of give advice to people is that they should just kind of start shooting stuff and cutting it together and see what works and doesn't work and what feels singular to them. And now that there's the ability to put things out online so easily, uh-huh. you've got no excuse for waiting or overthinking things or, you know, sitting on them for too long. Like, I, you know, it's it's tough to watch people that you've met that keep talking about something that they're writing or the screenplay that they're putting together that they never actually <laughs> execute or deliver on. And, and I've got Yeah, less, I know that. Less less time I know that, that all too well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Lance, thank you so much for, for taking some time to, to share your world with me. And uh, then also, thank you so much for sharing these comedians' worlds with all of us. Uh, right on, thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah, right on. Last Things First This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Bruzel at Showbird Studios.